Hi, everybody. It's Derek, and this is your Foreign Exchanges World News Roundup for Saturday, June 10th and Sunday, June 11th, 2023. Now that uh, the air is not cloudy with smoke here uh, in the Northern Virginia area, I feel like my voice has come back and I can uh, start doing these again. So here we are. Uh, there are a couple of anniversaries this weekend to note. On June 10th in 1190, Holy Roman Emperor Frederick I drowned in southern Anatolia on his way to join the expedition that we now know as the Third Crusade. His death contributed heavily to the breakup of the Crusader army uh, as Philip Augustus, the king of France, uh, decided he didn't want to play second fiddle to Richard the Lionheart. And had Frederick been there, uh, it's unlikely that the dynamic would have been quite the same. Uh, and so when the French crusaders left because they didn't, they were tired of playing second fiddle to Richard, uh, the crusader army was uh, woefully short of manpower, too short to uh, actually besiege Jerusalem. And so Richard was forced to, uh, after winning a couple of battles, eventually forced to, to give it up. Uh, and head back to Europe. On June 10th, 1898, U.S. Marines and Cuban forces captured Guantanamo Bay from Spain after a five-day battle. The U.S. quickly established a naval base there uh, that proved critical in winning the decisive naval battle and siege of Santiago in July. This That siege essentially ended the Spanish-American War in Cuba. Uh, the conflict continued on in other fronts until August in Guantanamo, uh, well, everything's just fine there today. Uh, of course, it remains a U.S. possession, uh, and uh, the less said about what goes on there, I suppose, the better. Uh, on June 11th, in the year 786, this is the anniversary of the Battle of Fakh, which was fought near Mecca uh, in the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, it was a uh, fought by a nascent Shia uprising uh, against the Abbasid Caliphate, the Abbasids, uh, as they so often did, decisively crushed uh, this small Shia uprising. What makes the battle notable is not really anything that happened during the battle. It's the fact that one of the rebel leaders, a man named Idris uh, bin Abdullah, survived and fled to northwestern Africa, where he established the Idrisid dynasty uh, and is credited essentially with founding the nation of Morocco. So a somewhat uh, momentous uh, event emerging or outcome emerging from a relatively insignificant battle. On to the news. In the Middle East and Syria, an apparent Turkish drone strike killed two Syrian Democratic Forces commanders and wounded three other people in the city of Aleppo on Saturday. The Turkish government regards the SDF as essentially a front for the Kurdistan Workers' Party, or PKK, and occasionally carries out these sort of attacks uh, on its personnel, though not usually in areas that are as heavily populated as Aleppo. In Yemen, attackers believed to be affiliated with al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula killed at least two Yemeni soldiers on Sunday when they attacked a military checkpoint in Shabwa province. Two attackers were reportedly wounded but managed to escape. In Iraq, gunmen attacked an Iraqi military barracks in Kirkuk province on Sunday morning, killing at least three soldiers and wounding another four. There's been no claim of responsibility as yet, but it would be shocking if this were anything other than an Islamic State operation. On to Asia and Afghanistan, or yeah, in Afghanistan, uh, UNICEF released a statement on Thursday saying that it is, quote, deeply concerned, end quote, over 
reports that the Afghan government is excluding international aid organizations from working in that country's education sector. There's been no comment from Afghan officials, but aid groups operating in the country say they've been told to hand their operations off to local organizations within a month. Uh, The thing is, there is little domestic capacity to take up that work, particularly in more remote parts of Afghanistan. In Pakistan, unspecified militants attacked a military checkpoint in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa province on Saturday morning, killing at least three Pakistani soldiers. Three of the attackers were also killed and another four wounded. Given the location, it's uh, hard to imagine this was anything other than the Pakistani Taliban uh, that were at work that was at work here. Uh, In China, this is sort of global, but it does have a China focus. Uh, There's a new report from the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, or CIPRI, uh, that finds that the number of operational nuclear warheads around the world, meaning warheads basically that are in shape to be used in combat, has increased by 86 over last year. The report finds that there are now 12,512 total nuclear warheads around the world. 9,576 of them meet the operational definition. Of those 86 newly operational nukes, 60 of them belong to China, as compared with 12 in Russia, 5 each in North Korea and Pakistan, and 4 in India. The report also noted new challenges in collecting this kind of data, as Russia and Western nuclear states, the U.S., Uh, France and the UK uh, have gotten less transparent about their nuclear arsenals since the war in Ukraine began. On to Africa and Sudan. The Sudanese military and the Rapid Support Forces actually seem to have maintained, more or less, the 24-hour ceasefire that went into effect Saturday morning. But when it expired, they apparently resumed fighting with a vengeance. Reuters, citing witnesses, reported some of the heaviest fighting in weeks in the city of Bahri, with additional fighting reported in its sister cities Omdurman and Khartoum. Uh, Fighting has also been reported in West Darfur and North Kordofan states, uh, though the situations in those provinces uh, is somewhat less clear than it is in in and around the capital. Uh, The ceasefire did reportedly allow for some limited humanitarian aid deliveries, which is not nothing. Uh, And the fact that it held, again, more or less, may build some confidence in negotiations between the combatants. In Tunisia, uh, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen said during a visit to that country on Sunday that the European Union may send over 1 billion euros in economic aid to Tunis in the coming days in an effort to stabilize the Tunisian economy. This aid package may not materialize because it's apparently dependent on the Tunisian government concluding a $2 billion loan deal with the International Monetary Fund, and President Kais Saeed uh, has been saying nasty things about the IMF in recent days, so those negotiations may not be going very well. But I still think the possibility is illustrative. Saeed has turned Tunisia from a struggling democracy into an imploding dictatorship, violating, violating alleged... EU principles around things like democracy and the rule of law. Uh, But Tunisia is a bulwark against asylum seekers attempting to uh, cross the Mediterranean to get into Europe. And so the EU is prepared to throw a pile of money Saeed's way because those principles matter a lot less to European leaders than keeping refugees at bay. In Somalia, that Ashabab attack on a Mogadishu restaurant and hotel that we mentioned in Friday's newsletter that had begun Friday night uh, left at least nine people dead uh, and at least 20 more wounded, uh, six of those killed. 
uh, in the attack were civilians and the other three were police officers. Somali authorities say their security forces neutralized, uh, this usually means killed, not always, but usually, uh, neutralized all of the attackers, but I haven't seen any reporting as to how many attackers there actually were. Uh, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Kodeko militia fighters attacked a Congolese military outpost in the eastern DRC's Ituri province on Saturday. They killed at least seven civilians uh, in that vicinity. Uh, in Europe, in Russia, the Wall Street Journal ha has a, had a report this weekend on the latest developments uh, in the German government's investigation into the Nord Stream pipeline bombing. Uh, I'll read you just a bit of this piece. Uh, German investigators are examining evidence that suggests the sabotage team used Poland, a European Union neighbor and NATO ally, as an operating base to blow up the Nord Stream pipelines built to transport Russian gas through the Baltic Sea. The probe by Germany's Federal Criminal Police Office is examining why the yacht they believe was used to carry out the operation journeyed into Poli Polish waters. Other findings suggest Poland was a hub for the logistics and financing of last September's undersea sabotage attack that severed the strongest bond tying Berlin to Moscow. Poland, which is conducting its own inquiry, has struggled for months to, to learn what Germany is investigating. German investigators have fully reconstructed the entire two-week-long voyage of the Andromeda, the 50-foot white pleasure yacht suspected of being involved in one of the biggest acts of sabotage on the continent since World War II, and pinpointed that it deviated from its target to venture into Polish waters. The previously unreported findings were pieced together with data from the Andromeda's radio and navigation equipment, as well as satellite and mobile phones and Gmail accounts used by the culprits and DNA samples left aboard, which Germany has tried to match to at least one Ukrainian soldier. Uh, increasingly, it seems the Ukrainian military and or intelligence community had direct involvement. This is me again, sorry. Uh, had direct involvement in the bombing, whether they worked independently or had support from the Ukraine fan club. Uh, remains unknown. In Ukraine, there are a number of stories. Uh, Ukrainian officials claimed on Sunday that their forces have seized three formerly Russian-held villages in Donetsk Oblast. Uh, if true, this would mark the first tangible progress they've made in their glorious counteroffensive, which we can safely say has begun now that Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky over the weekend acknowledged that it had in fact uh, kicked off. The Ukrainians have released images purporting to show their soldiers occupying the villages in question, though, of course, that's not confirmation of their claims. Uh, meanwhile, officials at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant have taken that facility's last uh, remaining active reactor offline. Five of the plant's six reactors have been offline since September due to concerns that shelling near the facility could cause an accident. But the sixth reactor had remained active in order to provide power to maintain the plant's cooling systems. The destruction last week, or on Tuesday, I should say, of the Nova Kakovka Dam, whose reservoir fed water into that cooling system, apparently made it advisable to put that reactor into shutdown as well. The plant was designed with contingencies to maintain its cooling system in the event of the dam's collapse, so there's no imminent threat of meltdown. The problem is that the facility is probably running out of contingencies at this point, so if anything else goes wrong, who's to say? Uh, and the Russian and Ukrainian governments concluded another prisoner swap on Sunday. The Russians reportedly released 95 Ukrainian prisoners, and the Ukrainians freed 94 Russians. In Montenegro, Montenegrin voters headed to the polls on Sunday for a snap election that was made necessary when former President Milo Djukanovic dissolved parliament back in March. 
the Europe Now movement, a centrist party that, as the name suggests, supports Montenegro's accession to the EU, has claimed victory, and put that in quotes, with 25.6% of the vote. I put victory in quotes because that is, of course, nowhere near enough votes to give the the party a sole majority, so it will have to look for coalition partners in order to form a government. On to the Americas in Honduras. The Honduran government formally opened its new embassy in Beijing on Sunday in a ceremony uh, attended by Foreign Minister Enrique Reina and Chinese Foreign Minister Chin, Zhang, Chin Gong. Excuse me. Uh, Honduras opened diplomatic relations with Beijing in March, severing its ties with Taiwan and leaving Taipei with only 13 countries that still recognize it diplomatically. Uh, Honduran President Xiomara Castro is in the middle of a multi-day visit to China, during which she's scheduled to meet with Chinese President Xi Jinping. In Cuba, the Biden administration has decided, decided to respond to the latest panic over reports that the Chinese government is building a spy facility in Cuba. Uh, please read Thursday's newsletter uh, for more on that. By assuring everybody that China has been spying on the U.S. via Cuba for years and even upgraded its intelligence facilities on the island in 2019. This is a bold strategy to be sure, but I assume the aim is to dodge accusations that the Biden administration has somehow dropped the perverse ball by arguing that this particular ball was dropped well before Joe Biden became president. Cuban officials have dismissed this claim and accused Washington of, quote, spreading rumors and slander, end quote. Finally, in the United States, at Tom Dispatch, Todd Miller argues that the Biden administration has outdone its predecessor when it comes to militarizing and monetizing the U.S.-Mexico border. And I will read you a couple of paragraphs from his piece. Since the Department of Homeland Security was established 20 years ago, Customs and Border Protection and Immigrations and Customs Enforcement have given private companies 113,276 contracts. Yes, you read that right. Uh, or, on a- or on average, five. 5,664 contracts annually, 16 per day. In the 15 years since 2008, the money spent on such contracts has amounted to $72.6 billion, and such figures have only been on the rise since Joe Biden entered the White House. The 4,465 contracts CBP and ICE have agreed to so far this year at a price of $4.1 billion put them on pace to surpass 2022's record-setting $7.5 billion. In 2022, CBP and ICE offered 9,909 contracts, an average of 27 per day, all of which means the Biden administration is likely to be the largest border enforcement contractor ever. Only recently, New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman suggested that President Biden should, quote, out-Trump Trump, end quote, and, quote, do everything possible to secure the border like never before. More walls, more fences, more barriers, more troops, the 82nd Airborne, whatever it takes. Make Democrats own border security, end quote. What Friedman apparently didn't realize was that Biden had already taken just that border path. From his first days in office, the president had stressed technology over wall building and not surprisingly received three times more campaign contributions from top companies in the border industry than Trump did in 2020. And unlike the former president's Title 42, this policy of contracts, campaign contributions, and lobbying that will push for endlessly higher border budgets is not set to expire ever. Uh, On that note... (laughs) 
<laughs> I know it's uh, always ending on a downer here. I apologize. Uh, but uh, thanks to all of you for reading and or listening to the newsletter. Uh, and especially thanks to those of you who are foreign exchanges subscribers, uh, particularly if you have made the jump to becoming a paid foreign exchanges subscriber. Uh, it really makes a difference. It's the uh, only support that this newsletter gets. Uh, and uh, we need as many of you as possible to uh to become paid subscribers and help keep the, the newsletter going. Um, until next time, take care, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.